I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you're following along in your bulletin, you can find that there on page 9. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it begins on page 881. We've been studying the significance of meals in Jesus' ministry. And in it, we've seen how Jesus comes to people, people whom we might not naturally think of, the outcasts and the outsiders. He comes near and he eats with them. Through meals, he shows us that he was seeking and saving those who were lost. And as we saw with Zacchaeus last week, we saw that when people ate with Jesus, their lives were forever changed. And so today we're going to look at the last meal that Jesus had before his death. Next week we'll finish the series by looking at a meal that Jesus has on the other side of his death, the resurrected and and glorified Lord. But despite the fact uh, that we often call these events that we're going to be hearing about today, even though we call them the Lord's Supper, and it's a phrase that's very familiar to us, it can be so easy for us to forget that this is a meal that Jesus was sharing with his followers. He was eating and drinking with his disciples. And in many ways, it's actually a culmination of what we've been seeing in all these meals that Jesus has been having with others as he's showing and proclaiming the truths of his kingdom and who he is as the king who came to seek and save the lost. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'll read the passage, and it's, it's an extended text, Luke 27, or 22, verses 7 through 30. So I'll read that in its entirety, and then we'll spend some time this morning considering some of the significance of what takes place in these verses. So hear God's word in Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went out and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? Who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, so far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider it together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as weak and needy people, tired in many ways, both body and soul, desperately needing your refreshing word. We pray that you would help us this morning to hear the words of our Lord Jesus. We pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen our faith, you would strengthen our our feeble bodies, and you would strengthen our souls to hear in faith and to see the beauty of our Savior and the kingdom that is now ours and the fullness of that kingdom that awaits us one day. We ask for your help in all these things. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Well, what I'd like to do as we consider this text this morning is begin by just um, kind of considering the context and seeing how meaningful of a meal this really was as we kind of consider the situation. And then from there, we'll see three things that the Lord's Supper shows us as we see the truths that Jesus is demonstrating in this meal that he has with his disciples. So first, by way of context, really, this is an incredibly meaningful and significant meal. The passage itself shows us how intentional Jesus is about spending this meal with his disciples. I think sometimes we could think uh, it's almost just an accidental thing. Jesus is on his way to the cross and, oh, I guess we need to eat before all that happens. But the text shows us that it's, it's nothing like that. Instead, the way that it's setting up in the early parts of chapter 22 is that the religious leaders have a plan. They have now partnered with Judas, and Judas is going to betray the Lord over to them at a time when the crowd is not present so that they can put Jesus to death. But then in the face of that plan, we see that our Lord Jesus was not a passive agent in this process. He knew that his hour had come, and he's intentionally marching toward that cross, making sure that all that he desires to be fulfilled would be fulfilled. And so in this plan that he has, he gives Peter and John these prophet-like instructions of how to prepare for this meal. They will find a man, and it's a man who maybe had heard Jesus' teachings before, and he will show them a guest room, this large upper room, 
And there the disciples, Peter and John, will make that room ready and will also do all the preparations for that Passover meal. It's interesting here, we we see just the significance of what's going on with that simple word, guest room. It's fascinating, if you remember back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, that word has occurred, but we often don't see it in our English versions because it's translated in. There was no room for Jesus when he was born at the inn in the town of Bethlehem as people had flocked for this census. And isn't it interesting that in Jesus' entrance into the world, there's no room for him, but this night, as Jerusalem swells to thousands for Passover, where where no room can be found, there's this room for Jesus, a large upper room where he can spend this time with his disciples. And so we see right away from Jesus' planning and intentionality the significance of what he was about to do, but he also makes this clear with his words. We see there in verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see those words there? He earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them. You know, we may think of a meal that we're going to have that's special to us, and we may think of a restaurant or a type of food that we would like to enjoy. But in this meal, in the context of Passover, it's what's fitting and beautiful to Jesus. Jesus says, I want the last meal that I have to be Passover with you as my disciples. And this was fitting for several reasons. One is because of what Passover itself signified. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what I want us to see as we consider it right now is that it was fitting because of the type of meal that Passover was. You see, Passover was a reenactment meal of sorts. It was this perpetual yearly ceremony by which God's people would reenact their deliverance from Egypt. They would roast a lamb and they would eat unleavened bread. They would tell their children over and over, year after year, of what the Lord had done for them. And so it combines for us the wonder of a meal, but also this this reenactment and perpetual remembrance. It's like we have this amazing meal together every 4th of July, and then we remember with fireworks that show us part of the battle that had taken place. It's, It's hard for us as Americans to even get close to the religious significance that's being shown in this meal. And so what happens here is Jesus takes this Passover reenactment meal and he's transforming it for his disciples. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, and when he speaks of eating it again one day when it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God, then part of what he's indicating is that this reenactment that he's transforming is to continue. And he is going to want his disciples to reaffirm the truths of what was taking place here at this meal over and over again, even when he was no longer with them. And so what that also means is that as Jesus shared this meal with them, 
he was also instituting a meal for us. That the things that he wanted them to see at this last supper is what he wants us to see every time we take of the Lord's Supper. And so he desired that his last meal would be Passover because of what it would continue to show his followers until he ate and drank of its fulfillment with them one day in the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so we see now how meaningful this meal is, how weighted uh, the whole situation is. But what is it that we're supposed to see as we consider it? The reality is there is just so much. We could be here for days on end because, in a sense, every thread of Scripture finds itself running through the Lord's Supper. It's a microcosm of every facet of the gospel. But instead of staying here for three days, uh, we will just consider together three truths this morning of what Jesus wants us to see in this meal. The first thing is that in the Lord's Supper, we see that we are delivered by Jesus' death. In the Lord's Supper, we see that we are delivered by Jesus' death. Think of when the Israelites celebrated the Passover, especially after that first Passover night. They remembered that God had delivered them, didn't they? Through the death of the Passover lamb, God passed over their homes and he didn't kill their firstborn. And they remembered as they celebrated this, not only the roast lamb that they had to eat and leave nothing behind because they were going to go, but they also remembered the unleavened bread that they had to eat with haste. They had to eat this meal ready. Why? Because the passing over of judgment was coming so they could be set free from Egypt. Sacrifice and deliverance came together for them in that Passover meal. And so every time they celebrated Passover, they were remembering, we have been delivered from Egypt. We are a people who have been set free. And yet by the time we come to Jesus' day, as they're celebrating the Passover, and it's become a much more formalized meal with now four cups and all kind, it's really a four-course meal that they're celebrating together, As they celebrated Passover then, they were also looking ahead to a future deliverance. You see, things hadn't gone all that well for them in the promised land, had they? (laughs) They sinned, they broke God's covenant, they were exiled, and then they were brought back, but they were still awaiting this, this full deliverance of God's kingdom that had been promised for them. And there were even expectations among some of them that Messiah would show up on Passover night and that he would bring about that true deliverance that they had been looking for. And so what happens here at this meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples is as he identifies himself with the elements of that Passover meal, with the bread and the cup, He was communicating to them that he was the true Passover lamb who had brought that deliverance to them. And that deliverance can be summarized by that phrase, the new covenant in my blood. And so as we consider the history of Israel, as we consider what had come before, We remember this amazing promise of the new covenant that had been foretold, don't we? 
In Jeremiah 31, the prophet had told of this this future time when God would make a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah 31, 32 says that it will not be like the covenant that he made with their fathers. And listen to the context. The context is this Exodus context. It would not be like the covenant he made with their fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Why? The covenant that they broke. So you see, this new covenant would be different and it would actually deliver them from their greatest problem. Because what Jeremiah goes on to say is that this new covenant will bring full forgiveness of their iniquity. That God, through the new covenant, will remember their sins no more. That his law would be written on their hearts and that they will all know him from the least to the greatest. They will be his people and he will be their God. And so when Jesus says that the cup that is poured out is the new covenant in his blood, he's proclaiming to them that that long-awaited promise of the new covenant has now been inaugurated. It's been brought into time and space through his coming death on the cross. And so do you realize the deliverance that we proclaim in the Lord's Supper When you eat the bread and drink the cup by faith in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us you are proclaiming the Lord's death. And what is being proclaimed is that you have been delivered, not from Egypt, but from all that once enslaved you. The only Son of God, the firstborn of heaven, was killed as the true Passover lamb. And God's righteousness passed over you. His righteous judgment passed over you and fell on him. And Jesus' blood was poured out to make you a part of this new covenant by faith. And what that means is you now have full and complete forgiveness of your sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though you don't yet do it perfectly, The law of God has been written on your heart by the Spirit. And even though it's now by faith and not by sight, you can say that you truly know the Lord and that he is your God and that you are one of his people forever. And just as those who ate that Passover meal were looking ahead to a future deliverance, so also we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, he will usher us from this wilderness journey that we we know. And he will usher us across that Jordan into the heavenly Canaan, the new heavens, the new earth, free from every one of our enemies. There will be no more sin, No more Satan, and death's long, dark shadow will be forever gone. And so, brothers and sisters, when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, what is being proclaimed to you is that you have been delivered by Jesus' death. Should we just stop there? (laughs) I've had enough. Um, 
Anyhow. As glorious as those words are, it gets even better. The Last Supper doesn't end with those words of institution. The evening goes on. The meal continues. And in it, so also does the meaning of what we need to know. We find these truths that the Lord continued to communicate that night. And so first we've seen that in the Lord's Supper, we are delivered by Jesus' death. But also in the Lord's Supper, we are shown that we are shaped by Jesus' service. We are shaped by Jesus' service. I love how real and raw Luke's account is. I read it and it's kind of striking. It almost feels like the Bible should somehow get holier when when we come to chapter 22. Because what we find is after this most meaningful institution of this transformation of Passover into the deliverance of the new covenant that they had longed for and been waiting for, Luke tells us that what happened, a dispute arose among them as they're still there reclining around that table with Jesus there and they're in that kind of horseshoe pattern, not like we see all seated at the table in the paintings that we have all seen. But this dispute arises among them and it's an argument that they've had before. Back in Luke chapter 9, they fought about the same thing. Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? Can you imagine that? I've been trying to wrap my mind around it all week, and it's still just strange. Jesus is about to die. He's sharing this meal with them, and they argue about their greatness, just like Jesus had said should not happen in his kingdom when in Luke 14 he confronted that um, Sabbath day meal and the ruler of the Pharisees. But what does it tell us as we see this erupting out of them in the face of such wonder? I think it shows us how deep that pride, that striving for status, how deep that runs within us. But Jesus does as he often did at meals. He patiently and he gently reorients them. And he reorients them to the kingdom that they are a part of. And he reorients them to who he is as their king. He explains the way of earthly kings in verse 25. You'll notice that it says there, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The key to this teaching really is in that term, benefactors. And we have to understand a little bit of what's going on in Jesus' day and in the Greek and Roman cultures that had kind of converged at the time. In that day, you rose to power through your wealth. And what you did with your wealth, if you wanted to have a position of power, is you used that wealth to bestow favors upon other people. And as you bestow favors upon other people, they owe you. And so what would happen is that by you bestowing favors upon others, your name could be inscribed on buildings and on monuments with the title of benefactor. And so what Jesus is saying is that in the world's kingdoms, kings and rulers, even though they may serve, they use serving to gain status, don't they? And we even see it in what's going on here. 
Earlier that day, we've had this beautiful example of Peter and John spending the entire day doing this amazing thing, preparing that room for the Lord's Supper, for the Passover. That would have involved them going to the temple, getting the right sacrifice, standing in a really long line while the lamb is slaughtered, bringing home its carcass, making sure you have the herbs, roasting the lamb, getting the wine, arranging the room. All day they served, right? But then... What happens afterwards? They are probably a part of this discussion about who among them is the greatest. You see how deep that principle lies? You serve to gain. But Jesus is different. He's not serving to gain something from them. What he says is that he, as their host, as their leader, as their king, was among them as one who serves. And as striking as it is for us that this discussion happens here at the Lord's Supper, it's really not all that surprising when we think about it, because his service was on his mind already. Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus washing his disciples' feet with the basin and the towel, and Jesus, anticipating what's going to happen to him, knows that he is going to serve in the most ultimate way of pouring out his life for them. And so serving for Jesus is actually central to his entire mission in all the meals that he's had before. Jesus was there eating with people, dining with them. Why? Because he came not to be served, but he came to serve by seeking and saving the lost. Do you realize how essential serving is to who Jesus is? into how he views his kingdom. Jesus told this parable earlier in chapter 12 that I've just passed over for many years and never noticed this connection before. But but listen to what's going on. The context is being ready for Jesus' return, right? And he's saying um, that servants will be faithful and watching for the master's return. In those parables, the master is Jesus, and he's going to come at an unexpected hour. But listen to the words of Luke 12, 37. Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master, Jesus, finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So when Jesus stops to use language to explain to us how he conceives of the end of the age And the consummation of all things, the language that he uses is this, that he will forever serve, serving his servants at the table. Have you ever noticed how many creation accounts, stories of the origins of humanity, speak of people being created in some way to serve the gods? And often the gods aren't really that great, are they? But somehow they're considered the benefactors of humanity for what they offer. Do you see how opposite, how counterintuitive the Christian gospel actually is? 
as we see love and mercy and blessing so rich and so free that it's described as serving his servants forever. And yet how often do we still come to the supper like the disciples? (laughs) When just below the surface or on the forefront of our minds is our status, our performance that week, our position in the kingdom. Maybe like Peter and John, we just did a really great thing, and so we think we've moved up a few seats at the meal. Maybe you've had a horrible week or a really rough drive to church, and you feel like you shouldn't even be a part of it. But Jesus stops us in our tracks, doesn't he? He says, not so with you. Why? Because I am among you as the one who serves. We have come to a different kind of kingdom. We have come to a different kind of king. And so he says, stop striving. Stop seeking glory and gain and acclaim and trying to prove yourself or earn your seat. And in the supper, he says to us, eat, drink, taste, see what it is to truly be served by the true benefactor, the one who gave himself to serve you, the one who even now is interceding and advocating for you, gracing you each day by his very spirit, and who even now is longing and anticipating the day when he will return so he can serve you in glory forever. You see, that kind of service, that kind of serving, it shapes us as believers. It changes everything about how we view religion, how we view God, how we view our works, how we view the gospel. And you know what else it changes? You think of those disciples fighting over who was the greatest that day. You think of them on the other side of Jesus' death when they see his blood poured out, his body given for them. And as they would take of the supper and as they would look up sheepishly at each other and remember that argument they had, they would remember how they had been served. And then what happened to them? They became those who poured their lives out in service like Jesus all the way to death, wisely loving everyone around them. You see, Jesus' service shapes us, and it's ultimately what enables us to serve others as Jesus did, wisely loving everyone we come in contact with. So in the Lord's Supper, we see that we have been delivered by Jesus' death, We see that we are shaped by Jesus' service. And then finally, we see we are assured by Jesus' covenant. We're assured by Jesus' covenant. I'm struck by how this meal that Jesus desired so much, it's really the culmination of all that's come before, just how messy it really was. A betrayer is there for part of it one who had been with Jesus all along. The disciples are here arguing, and then Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him, and then he tells the rest of the disciples, you're going to face persecution and hardship. 
But in the midst of that mess, if I were Jesus, I'd be saying, let's just pack it up now. I mean, this has been a failure. Um, But that's not his perspective at all, is it? In the midst of that mess, did you hear how confident Jesus is of how things will end? Listen to verses 28 through 30. Jesus says to them, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus here, first of all, affirms that his disciples have been with them, albeit imperfectly, through thick and thin, and stood with him in his trials, even though they're all about to run. But on the flip side of that, hear his confidence that he is certain that they will eat and drink at the messianic banquet. And how does he describe it? You will eat at my table in my kingdom. And they will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's debate about how this statement works out in the end times according to various views. And so we're just going to leave it at that. But, But everyone agrees, regardless of their view of the end times, that Jesus says that these apostles will be included in the messianic reign of Christ. And reigning with Jesus is something which we all, as believers, share in to some extent one day as royal king priests of the Lord Jesus. And so how in the world can Jesus be so sure that they're going to be with him and reign with him? Is he just an optimist? Is it just the glass is half empty? No, Jesus is confident because of God's covenant. In verse 29, he says these most amazing words, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. And that word there, assign, can be hard for us to capture without adding a lot of words to it, but it means giving to someone by means of a covenant. And so Jesus is saying that the father has covenanted to him a kingdom and that Jesus has covenanted a kingdom to his disciples and all who trust in him. And we could spend all morning talking about the beauty of how scripture shows how these covenants work together, but I'm just going to set all that aside because I think even in just that explanation, we have what we need to know for this morning. That at that meal, Jesus could look at that room of normal, far from perfect disciples And he could be confident that they will be with him at his table, in his kingdom, not because of their flawless record, but because of the triune God's covenant and promise that he was about to fulfill and bring to them then through the new covenant. He was confident because of all that he would accomplish as he would cry out on that cross, it is finished And God's plan of salvation brought into fulfillment, entering into time and space with them. Think of how comforting it must have been for those disciples after those next few days, when they, after their failures, after their denials, after ongoing trials, would break bread and drink the cup and remember Jesus' confidence in their future because of his covenant.
And so also, we gather together. I love being able to be up front when I think about the Lord's Supper because I get to look around and I give you full permission anytime during the Lord's Supper, not during the sermon, during the Lord's Supper, to look around. Because you know what? I think it looks a lot like the meals Jesus would have had in those days. In terms of this, we gather as a group of normal, far from perfect people who are facing doubts, who are wavering in our faith, who are feeling defeated by indwelling sin, who are battling pride like the disciples and trying to prove ourselves. We gather as those who are really weary from the trials and onslaughts of living this side of Eden. But when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, part of what's happening is Jesus is assuring us of our place at his table in his kingdom, not on the basis of our good works, not on the basis of our strength and fortitude, not on the basis of our resilience or the big things that we do for God, but because of what the triune God has covenanted will happen for each and every one of us who looks on Jesus in faith. So in the Lord's Supper, Jesus assures us of our future because of his covenant. I've been amazed how important meals were to Jesus. I'm still trying to grasp the intensity of his desire on the night when he was about to die for sinners, that he wanted to sit down with them, look them in the face, eat and drink with them, even as they continued to sin the very sins he was about to die for. And yet he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. What kind of love is that? I'm still trying to comprehend the fact that Jesus describes the end of the age, the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, as God sharing a meal with us. Do you ever struggle to believe this? I can believe that this happens for believers, but can you believe that this is true for you? The God of heaven desires to have a meal with you through Jesus Christ. I wonder if it's because this is so hard for us to really grasp that when Jesus institutes a perpetual reenactment to happen over and over again of his saving work, What is it? It's not an elaborate temple service. It's not some austere ceremony. What is it? It's a meal. It's a humble meal with such earthly things as eating and drinking and remembering. Could it be that Jesus knew that one of the most important things that we would need to have communicated to us every week is that there is a God who loves us so much that he has come to seek and save us through the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we could be with him in a way that the Bible describes as eating and drinking with him, delivered from all of our enemies, every tear wiped away, 
served from the riches of his storehouse of endless blessings and delight, and experiencing together the fullness that all of all that our triune God has covenanted together to do for us. And that is ours forever through Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask that he would give us faith to believe such wonderful things. Our Father in heaven, we are undone with our own sinfulness. We are undone with the weakness of our faith, with how quick we are to doubt but we are bound up when we remember how we have been delivered, when we see our Savior who serves us, and when we are assured of the promise of the triune God that you will be our God and we will be your people forever. We give you praise for all these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.